Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Exactly. It's just like Pink Floyd's The Wall, except whatever version you guys enjoy now. <laughs> I used to have children, and now I have boxes. Well, this is convenient. <laughs> that was my thought. I mean, I, I mean, you can't store anything in a child, so... <laughs> I do have to move soon, so yeah, I, I do need a few extra boxes. Come to think of it. They took away my children, and now I have boxes. boxes. All the boxes I need. Wow, I guess I'll cross-visit the U-Haul store off my to-do list. How many boxes would it take to uh, sort of fill the void that would be, uh, that, w- that would sort of happen if a child was taken away from you, if like your son was taken oh, away yeah. from you? How many boxes would it take like to That's compensate that That's a really good question. That's a really good question. De- depends Lils? on the kind of box for me. Depends on the kind of child for me. <laughs> it's a little bit of both, isn't it? Multiple yeah, exactly. But I mean, like, just trying it, it, to reduce it, it to the. Oh, go ahead. If it's some of that, like really, you know, polycarbon, re, like reinforced cardboard, like I, no child can compete with that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good point. That's that's a really good point. I mean, what about polyboard children? Those. Uh, that's. I believe that's a cardboard cutout you're referring to. Well, I, don't think I mean. So. Which yeah, are the best kind of children of them all. You don't you don't have to feed them? They don't cause a fuss, no hooting and hollering. No hooting and nor nor the hollering. I went to I went to elementary school with, with a few polyboard children. I don't think you know it's, it's not that <laughs> big hit, of a I deal. I hit record two I hit record two, by the way, so we're getting all of this. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's time that we need to stop stigmatizing people being made out of polyboard and just accept like people, it takes all sorts. It takes all sorts, mm. you know. It ta- it takes a village, like Hillary Clinton it ta- said. It ta- yes, she was the coiner of that phrase. To, to a bunch of boxes. Yeah, <laughs> she was like, I thought I needed a village, and instead I have these boxes. I do guess you, that's okay too. Do you know how much she got paid to give that speech to the boxes? Like, like hundreds of thousands of dollars wow special box interests hundreds of thousands of dollars in trips to the box factory i mean there's a box political action committee that they have some yeah yeah bay pack give give her some credit if you're if you're running if you're running for higher office you need to court the box lobby you're not just gonna like waltz into the front door of the white house without boxes yeah they're they're tenacious Where, where where are you gonna pack your shit you think you could just move in without boxes move into the white house what are you yeah. gonna have like a servant carry every item one by one? 
like don't we have enough box lobbyists in Washington? Like don't we honestly? have enough box don't we have enough box beasts? Box beasts. <laughs> I think guys, I think it's time for a boxer rebellion. Oh fuck, that already happened. And God, then it's then it's time for a second boxer rebellion. We can have two. Oh, yeah. Electric boxaloo. Electric boxaloo, exactly. <laughs> my phone was ringing a second ago. Oh yeah. I should silence my life. <laughs> Life silenced. I've been getting so many like telemarketers lately. Where where Just, are you getting them? Um, in, in, from, a, in a in a stranglehold. I've got the, the bo- telemarketers in a stranglehold, baby. <laughs> from the box factory, clearly. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what you go for boxes and telemarketers. Wow, they work fast. They already heard yeah, you they, talking about boxes, and they already jumped right <laughs> on it. Yeah, oh we, yeah, they're they're like uh, they're like the NSA. They've got ears. We everywhere. did not know that Zoom was selling our conversational data to the box lobby, but we knew what we signed up for. But they are. <laughs> but they are. But they are. Peer, and and there, it's you know this is this is uh, you know we can blame this squarely. Welcome on. to Jukebox Zeros. I'm Lils. Knock knock. Uh. It's your old okay, pal, okay. Eugene. Can I come in? Oh, jeez. Uh, well, I mean, you've clearly already well, busted well, the I'm door down. So down we're, we're out here. It's a it's a wind tunnel, and there's a lot of keyboards. It's a it's a keyboard and wind tunnel situation. Are you going what? to let me in? Okay. Then who who's this guy? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm not terribly sure, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I had my uh, I had my walkie-talkie going. Uh, I'm not sure who that was, but. <laughs> Uh, just, just stop it in real quick, seeing if, uh, Patrick had, uh, had a few minutes to, to talk, uh, or perhaps, uh, Father Alexander, I, I heard he's back to life now. I mean, I, I thought he did, but he seems not to be here. Well, I told them not to resuscitate. I wanted to meet St. Peter. What? Who's this? Father Alexander. Oh, this is the famed Father Alexander that, y- you know, they We finally get to meet. There are you... people look. There are people looking for you, you know. We have yes? questions. What sort of questions? But, uh, oh, well, first of all, uh, we thought you were dead, uh, and you're, you're very much alive. And, you know, before you passed, you, your hair wasn't so white, and uh, you weren't so, uh, I guess, folksy. That's <laughs> the, oh. the word you, you would say. Oh, well... Uh, you, 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 you've clearly gone through some changes and uh, uh, some sort of passage of time, and I, I want to know what you. What, how did you accomplish this? Well, I see. I took some inspiration from Gandalf in his transition from gray to white. I thought so. Pretty, pretty he, one to two there. He started a bit folksier and then ended up <laughs> a bit less folksy in his white form. This is. <laughs> This is incredibly exciting. <laughs> this is great news. This, this, so, uh... Oh, Pat, you showed up. I did, yeah. Hey, hey, Gene, uh, thanks for thanks for stopping by. Uh, we'll talk later. Uh, this, this, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll talk later. I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to smoke some of your weed. No, you are not going to smoke some of my weed. Uh, we talked about that, too. You can have some of my, uh... Don't worry, I'll take the weed. <laughs> we'll talk later, Father. I have all these critters at my house now, and they just sort of. Uh, yeah, you're you're getting a real menagerie there. <laughs> it's a real, real rogues gallery. 
Uh, <laughs> oh, there, there they go. They just ran outside. They're chasing Gus. Yeah. Oh, well, Gus is chasing them now. Oh. Yeah, yeah that, that really... He, he overtook them very quickly. Yeah. Uh, Eugene isn't very large. Uh, he, he's kind of a... He's like almost squirrel-sized. He's, yeah, he's, he's like three apples tall. Mm. Like three a Smurf. Tall, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, welcome to Jukebox Zeroes, where your idols come to die. It's season four. We're stupid jerks now. A trench full of urine. I'm so mad at all five of my dads, straight from the duck. Please, it's Dumpsterton. Tell us more about the history of clowns. That's fucking, uh, that's girls. Give Santa some dome. Roadhouse. Oh, wow. Roadhouse made it into the collection. That's great. Yeah. Uh, these, these are taglines from uh, every single episode we've done this I kind of want to. I kind of want to make it into a shirt at like the very end of the season. I would love that. I think, That's a great I think idea. It would, it would, they would sell like hotcakes. I mean, are, can, can, I, can I pitch something for, uh, you know, the uh, tagline for this episode? That's Just, our guest, Clinton Deegan, by the way. Yes. Just, oh, guest from the guest uh, from the Greta Van Fleet and Creed episodes. Some of our best episodes, if I do say so myself. <laughs> Some of our best kind. and biggest episodes yet. Uh, so, yeah, well, what are you pitching, Deegan? Uh, who's on Monkey Patrol? Oh, boy. Is this a shirt or a tagline? Both. Both. It's a, it, it could be either. Well, now, now you've kind of put me on the spot because now I have to use that. So, here's my problem. Uh, the shirt says, who's on Monkey Patrol? I feel like... It's it's obvious that the person wearing the shirt that just says Monkey Patrol on it, I, I would think that they are the Monkey Patrol, so you wouldn't That's have to a- ask that question. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Or is there just never been one, and this person is full of questions? He, he's questioning. Uh, I think I I kind of think of it more as I like mean, a, if you think about it, Pat, we're all full of questions, and we're all on Monkey Patrol. I suppose so. I mean, they, it's a rhetorical question, right? It's like it's not like a. We don't. We don't. Nobody needs to come out and say I'm on Monkey Patrol. We all accept that. Ever since talk shows, uh, you know, emergence on the scene, we all knew that we were all on Monkey Patrol all the time. So, so the idea, at least if I'm understanding it, is like for someone to wear the Monkey Patrol shirt and for someone to go up to it and just go, "Yes, yes, of course, indeed." Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, yeah. Or may just I posit this: What was the last time you saw a monkey? In person? In person, uh, not in captivity, like not, not in fic- a zoo, like just out. Not in, fictitious? Just like out on the streets, uh, in, in a tea shop, whatever. It's not been, a fictitious monkey? It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Like since 1997, right? Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, that checks out because ever since Monkey Patrol got so hardcore, there's no safe place for monkeys. Hmm. None at all. So. So we're still in, if, if you can't tell, we're still in mental recovery from last time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I lost, like, most of my brain from that last yeah. episode. Doug no, also, wait, uh, so hold on. Can, you, can y'all catch me up real quick? Like, what happened in this last episode that last episode we did off? Nostalgia Critics The Wall, which a lot of people said was our best episode, but also, you know, killed us, you know... Internally, are, are you familiar with the uh, nostalgia critics? The Wall, Clinton. I'm I'm only familiar with this other version, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Yeah, mm. well the the version that Pink Floyd did is is uh, you know the the one we all love and cherish. 
because it's the original <laughs> one. Uh, oh, and then this, oh. this character, this YouTube character did a uh, satire review thing. I, I don't know. It, it was just terrible. Wow. Uh, in, in the most gracious sense of the term. Imaginable. But yeah, like that that ruined us and for a while we were a little scared that we would never like laugh or love or feel again. Yeah, that so, makes sense. Yeah, we had to like we actually met up in person to brainstorm. We didn't wear masks or anything. At the end of it, we licked all the walls. Yep. And just to sort of brainstorm, I have like our I have our notes here from the uh right here. I mean, it sounds like I have a bunch of Moe's napkins, but it's not. It's the notes that we took. <laughs> Those look like napkins. <laughs> it's not. It's the notes that we took from our brainstorming was, session. Patton, you should know oh, this. Oh, they look familiar. You're right. They, I, yeah. was completely, um, I was completely ready to accept that y'all take your notes on Moe's napkins. <laughs> Moe's napkins. Yeah, that, that's my favorite rapper anyway. Moe's napkins. napkins. See, so what's interesting about this is it sounds like... Um, Nostalgia critics, whatever his face is, his um, version of the wall has caused you to build up a wall. You know that I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's very true. And I'm like looking at our notes and uh, I got to tell you, Pat, they're not very good. They're not they're not good notes. There's lot, like I can't even make out most of these. And at one point, the only thing I can make out at the very bottom and like very janky headline, janky writing, it says February, and then it's crossed out and in big bold letters, just circled and underlined over and over again. It says Fartbuary. Oh, that's for right. Uh, that's right. I tried pitching that to you a while back. Uh, fart you, fartuary. Uh, yeah, no, no. Uh, it says fart. It says fartuary on here, but it's been crossed out a bunch of times so that we could put more circles around fartbuary. Mm. Mm. It also, yeah, so. I also see at the bottom it says fart February at the bottom, and like I see an effort was made to actually tear that bit off of the note itself, but it was taped back on. So I mean, whoever whoever came up with fartbuary must have been really adamant. I don't remember who it was though. That was me. <laughs> I was. I, oh yeah, I, you, were, the, you were. I'm, I was the one uh, going to bat for for fart buery. Oh yeah, or, you, yeah. You you got. I'm remembering now. You got very intense over fart buery. Yeah. Well, it's no toots January, uh, so you don't you, you you don't pass you don't pass the gas for for all of January, and then it is a uh, a spiritual release mm. all throughout February. Binge and purge. Yeah. Pinch and purge. It's, it, do, it's, do you remember like where we were going with Fartbuary, or I don't? Is it just there to be? Is it just there to be a goofy portmanteau at this point? It at one time meant something. Uh, I'm drawing a blank, and I, I tried looking up our Slack conversation real quick because I, I feel like there was an insight there, but it has been lost to the annals of uh, Slack. The time. annals, the annals of Slack time. The annals, if you will. Mm. I I mean it means something to me. February means something. It means something I should to hope me. So. Yeah, I, I mean, like to think it means something to everybody. To everybody. What everybody does February mean every, to you? Everybody who's out there right now on Monkey Patrol hashtag who's on Monkey Patrol, and it's just looking for their monkey. I mean we remember. Anyway, welcome back to Junk Box Classics, everyone. Uh, it's Sunday yep. morning, sipping my coffee. Junk and, uh, Box Classics. I got, I got my, my good pal Lils Martin here, and uh, we, we are ready to appraise some junk. Okay, what do we got here? Mm. This looks like a sort of porcelain monkey. Uh, and oh. $32. I'll pay $32 for that. 
Uh, I'm the one who appraises the prices. Thank you very much. Uh, what do we have here? We have some sort of vinyl. Oh my goodness, what is this? There's like, uh, there's like these Muppets sitting in, in four chairs and, and there's lights and there's a sign on the side that says talk show. Uh, Excuse me, I got a dingly dangly thing from my late aunt Cole. How much can that. I get for my that. dingle dangle goes like this? You make a nice noise. I will pay three thousand. Uh, fuck. I was going to pay sir. three grand for that. Sir, sir, excuse me, sir. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Yes, young lady. Sir, yes, sir, I have saved all of my stinkiest farts for <laughs> the entirety of January, and I would be wondering if you could buy them for me, for my children haven't eaten. Okay, all right, this is my, how, how long have you cured them? Uh, because if it's less than a month, I'm not, I'm not taking, I'm not taking it. I have too Ain't, much. I have too many farts in my hand. sir? <laughs> Don't waste my time. If, 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 you, if you have not cured your farts less than... For, for more than a month, I, I like honestly don't waste my time. Very I well. Know. I suppose little Peter will starve. Yeah, I suppose little Peter will starve. Our podcast turned into Antiques Roadshow for a second. <laughs> Did. Uh, and I just, you know, disappointed a child again. We're, we're wasting that's okay. all this time we, at we this can point. Re- we can replace a child with boxes. <laughs> that is true. My God, it's all coming full circle, just like this album, I think. Maybe, I don't know, that didn't quite work. Albums move in a circle. In the, Al- al- vi- in albums the music, are shaped like circles. In the music video, they're on a record, and it's moving circularly. That's right. I had the triangle disc. Uh, I don't know about you guys. Oh. That must have been very difficult to listen to. It was. It kept cutting off at like yeah points. it keeps cutting off and cutting back in <laughs> and, and then the, yeah they, the the last tracks you know forget about it you, you can only get about like a second <laughs> i don't know okay stone temple pilots never heard of them <laughs> despite having a sordid reputation with critics in their earliest days and a history of controversial behavior via their late yet famed former lead singer scott wyland uh or is it violent I've never been clear on that. Wyland villains, violence. He, I mean, he is the villain of the story. Hmm, Scott Villain. Uh, the San Diego-based four-piece have gone on to be an indelible part of 90s pop culture and one of the most commercially successful acts of the grunge movement. Tracks like Vaseline, Sex Type Thing, Interstate Love Song, Creep, Trippin' on a Hole in a Paper Heart, Flush, and others are still considered very well-regarded 90s singles, and have become modern staples of classic rock radio, which means we're all old now. Even the very same critics who scoffed at the band in their heyday have gone on to reevaluate and reappraise their discography for the better, mostly. Uh, their commercial peak was with the aforementioned frontman Scott Weiland, who in his lifetime was a major influence on numerous future vocalists and is frequently mentioned in the same breath as 90s legends like Kurt Cobain and Lane Staley. But for all his influence and legacy, Weiland has always struggled with drug abuse. Uh, 1997, the first of many times he would take leave of STP before ultimately being fired from the group in 2013, Wyland exited the group in order to undergo rehab and write solo material. 
During this time, the rest of Stone Temple Pilots would engage in another project. Uh, guitarist Dean DeLeo, bassist Robert DeLeo, and drummer Eric Kretz connected with Dave Kautz, or Kootz? I'm not, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't know. It's pronounced Guys, Gary. I don't, guys, I, <laughs> okay. Connected with Gary, vocalist of the obscure California hard rock act Ten Inch Men. From there, the quartet would uh, soldier on without Wyland until he was ready to regroup, under the band name Talk Show. Talk Show would release only one record during their incredibly short tenure as a group, a self-titled record that received positive-leaning reviews but barely achieved lackluster sales. In spite of a supporting tour with Foo Fighters and Aerosmith, Talk Show never managed to catch on with audiences. Coots would exit the band, or Couts, depending on where you're from in the U.S., would exit the band a year later, and the rest of Stone Temple Pilots would reunite with Scott Weiland, leaving Talk Show as an oddity in their respective histories. Is Talk Show best left buried or a hidden alt-rock gem? That's what we're here to find out today. And that's all the notes that I have for this episode, because I did a bad. Perfect. Uh, you know what we didn't do? It's the apology section. <laughs> oh, crap. And we're very sorry about that. Is it too late? <laughs> I'm sorry we skipped the apology section then. Yeah, all right. I'll, but I'll, I might I'll as well take this opportunity also to say I'm sorry that I really am not sure how much I'm going to be able to contribute to this episode because for the first time ever, I'm going into this with no notes whatsoever. Fair like enough. at all. That opening essay was the only thing that I wrote because there's sim- no one's really been talking about like talk show, the album, or the band like retrospectively. Like, whenever we do reviews for these albums, I can always count on, like, Loudwire or Classic Rock Junkie or some other similar, you know, clickbaity news site, uh, you know, to have, like, a retrospective titled, like, uh, you know, Scott, the, that time that Scott Weiland did a, went away and Dean DeLeo did a, did a silly with talk show. <laughs> <laughs> we could but write no, that article. I mean, this is I, easily I written. suppose I could. But nope, no such luck. I did find like one kind of slightly longish article that I'll probably go back to a bunch of times on the website, stplegacy.com. But otherwise, like, not only am I going to this with no notes, but like a barely formed opinion of this album, which I think once we start playing clips, you'll understand why. Sure. Uh, that's fair. Should we talk about uh, our individual relationships with? Stone Temple Pilots, the the band. Yeah, you, you guys denizens. feel free to. Yeah, you guys feel mm. free to just go off because I once again have just a very surface level understanding of STP. Yeah, you're you're for the most part like kind of only familiar with their hit singles on the radio. Yeah, which, so I so I can't get too deep in the paint about it. Yeah. Uh. So, I think for me growing up uh, as a child of the '90s, uh, like I, I really kind of started dipping into music at like around age 12. Uh, and that was around the time that Tiny Music, STP's album, uh, came out. And uh, it was like one of the first non-Metallica <laughs> albums, that, or like cassettes that I picked up, I guess. Uh, so it was, you know, a step towards a, you know, less metal, more, I guess, uh, pop and rock uh direction for me for for listening and shit but uh 
I, I really loved that album when it came out. It was sort of like uh, very, compared to their previous albums, it was like a lot more lush and poppy and, and like more emphasis put on the production. Uh, it was less macho, I guess, and, and more Brit pop and glam rock oriented. Uh, and yeah, I'd read that like around this period was when they started experimenting with like psychedelia and glam a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And they see when they when the band first came out uh, in the early 90s with core, they got uh, lambasted pretty hardcore in, in the rock press for being like Pearl Jam ripoffs, which is valid in some ways. But I also think is a really lazy uh, assessment to make of that first record. It wasn't really so much. He wasn't really so much doing a uh, Eddie Vedder so much as like a Jim Morrison ripoff. And the songs weren't really, you know, they, they didn't have the same vibe really even as it's, Pearl Jam. It's a weak connection at best. Yeah, it's, it was a pretty weak connection to make. And I think it was, you know, at a time when, I don't know, like people were like looking for uh, reasons to... Uh, see, just, I guess like reasons shit, that like shit on like the next generation of grunge artists. Exactly. And I think like a reason to be like, oh, see, this is just going to be another trend. Oh, look, well, uh, there, there's one now. If, <laughs> like, if, uh, can I can I if I can add on a deeper yes. level, I feel like grunge had a problem with uh, authenticity worship. Yes. And that was, a, and this that was feeling, an issue. And this feeling that like uh, if you're not broken enough, then uh, you're not real. If you're not Seattle enough, you're not real. It's like. You know, there there was a real effort to tear people down for their lack of authenticity. And mm. I don't actually, um, I mean, just to riff on that a little bit, I don't hear STP as lacking in authenticity. I don't hear anything they do as somehow being cynical or conniving any more than any other band also moves with the tides that are around them in the mainstream. Well, I, I will I will jump on that to say, like, there were definitely some bands that had that authenticity problem for sure, though. Like, it wasn't just a completely, like, you know, nothing sort of thing. Like, people were right to rip on, like, live or collective soul and that sort of thing, <laughs> mm. I would say. Yeah, sure. You know, I think I think it's I think it's relative to be quite honest. I think it's relative to the quality of the act itself. So if like, you know, complete, you know, if an amazing band decides we love the sound, we're going to embrace the sound, is that inauthentic? Absolutely not. Uh, right. So like like when we criticize bands like Live or Collective Soul, I mean, that's a whole separate episode. Right. So I won't get too deep into that. But if we did, yeah. it you would think be that more... might be an episode, Pat, uh, also ran Grunge Roundup. Ugh, probably. <laughs> but like we would really not be criticizing the fact that they're trying to do grunge. We'd be criticizing the overall quality of their writing and musicianship. Because true. if they delivered the A-level goods, if they delivered a Pearl Jam or an Alice in Chains or whatever, we wouldn't care. Right, exactly. Mm. So, so just jump jumping off that, uh, I, I think I think what happened was these guys are from I think they're from SoCal. They're definitely California. They're definitely yeah. very much Stone Temple Pilots. They're definitely yeah. more California. I think I believe Scott Weiland is from like Indiana or Minnesota. I'll look that up. But I think he's like a Midwest kid. 
Yeah. Hmm. So that that kind of all tracks too. So that uh, that sort of like midwestern suburban uh, naivety uh, in like a charming way can can be like kind of refreshing when it's like they're they're you know they clearly love their influences and they 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 have a love for for like a certain style of songwriting and yeah. playing. Ca- yeah, in ca- California, that's definitely like during that time. There's no way that you could operate in California without also picking up a little bit of like you know the huge hard rock movements oh for that, sure like that originated there absolutely i mean it was still they were they were be, they be formed it, in the late it like, 80s you know be it like the glamier side yeah. or the more sort of grittier guns and rosesy kind of hard rock exactly like and they formed in the late 80s when a lot of these acts were still pretty pretty big and uh it's funny listening to their first record and some of their uh some of their demos uh like they recently released something uh, a song that was going to be on the crow or something like that but they decided to pull it at the last minute uh delio's guitar tone is actually like very heavily influenced by robert smith at that point so it's like a very very weird sort of amalgam of influences happening uh and, and i wonder if that like kind of pissed some people off like they were almost pilfering from all these different genres in some way uh but like they weren't you know they weren't real denizens of, of seattle grunge or, or you stone know. temple pilfer yeah <laughs> i like do, that. now just just between the three of us do we think there's anything wrong with people actually uh borrowing elements from a variety of genre styles not. movements no, no way no absolutely again not. so i i it's like this is part of why i i keep I keep understanding part of this as like an authenticity issue with critics and fans at the time versus a problem with musicians at the time. Yes, I I, I think you're right, and, and yeah, there there wasn't really much focus on, on their songwriting, which like is is kind of one of their strongest points at at this mm. at least at this point in their career. It's pretty solid. Yeah, you think we should start getting into the music then? Alrighty. Like, uh, should we start getting into talk show? Whatever this is, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like straight from the top, I think as early as the first track, you'll understand why I had a hard time. I not being a Stone Temple Pilots fan and not, not, not like not like not a fan, just not you know well learned about them and not able to like really pick up the intricacies. So here's track one from Talk Show titled "Ring Twice." So here's what my thought process was listening to this. Like, oh, this is okay. This kind of sounds like Stone Temple Pilots, except the singers may be a little duller. Oh, God, are they all going to sound like this? <laughs> I'm not going to be able to say anything about it. That's, uh... And I, di- and I couldn't. I have, that's why I have no notes. They all sound like just Stone Temple Pilots songs to me. They do. I mean, this... They, they do. I mean, this brings up... I, I had a ton of thoughts about this talk show record, and um, one was trying, like, having trouble understanding who they thought they were selling it to, right? So, like, this this is like I, I feel like 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 a like a market problem. Like, are you trying to sell talk show to people who love Stone Temple Pilots? People who love Stone Temple Pilots mm. will probably listen to it and be like, "Yeah, this is pretty good," but where's Scott Weiland? 
You know, like, like <laughs> they're like slight, slightly cheated, right? That's like, a good point. Are you trying to sell it to people who casually like Stone Temple Pilots? They're probably going to hear it and say, well, yeah, this is fine, but I could also listen to Local H or something. You know, are you going to sell it to people who don't like Stone Temple Pilots? They're definitely going to reject it. I feel like at every level of, like, who you're trying to uh, to sell this album to, it, I, I don't understand. I don't understand where it's supposed to fit. Right. And well, well, I, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Wills. Well, I mean, on top of that, since you mentioned that, like, um, the sound does kind of, like, explore some different sort of domains later on. Like, it gets psychedelic and drifts into, like, Britpop in a couple of areas. Except the problem was that's all, that was also the exact same avenues that Stone Temple Pilots themselves were exploring right up to the release of Talk 100% Show. 100% correct. And and they yeah. would explore on, on the next Stone Temple Pilots album, number four, as well. There, there's actually a couple ballads on here that that reminded me of some uh, on the on that subsequent album. So, in, in the research for this, I found out that one of my favorite songs on Stone Temple Pilots, number four, was actually written originally as a talk show song. Really interesting. Yep, Which one was this, that? The song Glide. Hmm. Oh, that's a great track too. It's a great song, and that I guess originally there was like Dave Coates' version of that, um, and then you know talk show broke up before they did anything with it. Well, How many goodness. different pronunciations of his last name do you think we're going to get through before the podcast is through? I'm going to go with seventeen. Hmm. I, I haven't tried Kautz. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite is Dave Quats. Quats. <laughs> Dave Quato. <laughs> So, so keep track. So like, keep track at home, listeners, and so then the, <laughs> text your answer to us. Text one for five and three for yes. So I was kind of delighted, Lils, that you were like, "Well, I have just like a casual relationship with STP because I was like, I don't." So I was like, very curious what relationship someone who has a casual relationship with STP would have with this record because to to me, it's like it's it doesn't have. It doesn't have that standout appeal that lets it be its own thing, right? Uh, I, I think I, I think our opinions, uh, Deegan and mine, are, are going to be pretty familiar. I think our relationship with SCP is, is uh, pretty similar. I think my my initial uh, thought when I heard this song was, okay, cool. I'm I'm hearing the that like single coil twang that DeLeo does, and like that's actually a pretty cool riff, and like makes sense for that time period. Uh, my one issue with it was just the production was a little bit duller uh, and took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and part of that is I, I had trouble hearing Dave on that first track. I, I he was his voice was like really muffled, uh, which was kind of unfortunate because I thought that first track was pretty cool. I thought there was, uh, you know. He was doing. They were doing all the things, you know. Eric Kretz slamming away at the drums, and DeLeo doing his twangy single coil riff, and the other DeLeo doing some, you know, snazzy jazzy bass stuff. Uh, but then, yeah, as soon as Dave comes over, it's like, oh, this is subtracting a little bit now. Well, uh, I, there's a few elements to that, right? And I think you, you've you've put your finger on both of them, which is like. Dave Coots is is Dave Coots. Dave Coots. Dave Coots. Dave Quats is is fine, but but it's impossible for us to not compare him to Scott Weiland. That's the problem. And, and then and, yeah, and, and then also it's a it's a it's a 
band band seeking a producer. I guess they they decided to produce this record themselves. That makes which, sense. Which makes sense because this these songs are so they just need production so badly and it's like the the pure compositional ideas are similar to what you would hear on an STP record of the time but like the thought going into like the arrangements isn't there in terms of like you know how are we getting in and out of these songs it's like they're less realized um in terms of layering they're less realized in terms of the sonic shaping they're less realized Right. Like it still has that like super thin thing that like tiny music has, but sounds just like harsher and duller and thinner and just less interesting. What it just doesn't sound as well mixed as a Brendan O'Brien production, which, you know, obviously he he's a pretty all-star producer from that era. He's a he's a pretty big deal. He's a pretty he big a deal. Pre- uh and he produced I mean, tiny music. Uh, but then yeah, hearing this one it, it almost sounds like uh like did you like uh like take out all those bad frequencies like i i don't know there's just like a lot of kind of clutter happening incredibly cluttered he's a pretty big deal he's brendan o'brien and he's a pretty big deal tip it's, hat it's literally it's literally every instrument just in the high mids yeah and, yeah and like kind of that's what i thought tiny music was too but this is way worse <laughs> way worse oh boy yeah, like, as I mentioned at the top, my experience with Stone Temple Pilots is very surface level, but I feel like I've heard enough of it to know that, like, you know, that so many of these are trying to be Stone Temple Pilots songs, and on top of that, uh, Dave Coates is <laughs> very clearly trying to sound similar to Scott Weiland, and I feel like, you know, he gets there, but not quite, now, I mean, I almost, like I almost like want that. to take exception to that. Like, do you, do you really think they're trying to sound like STP, or is it just like? Okay, I, may, I almost maybe. took it the, I took it the opposite way. I kind of took this as their like not trying record. They're like, it's fine. People will buy it no matter what. We'll just won't try too hard this time. I mean, maybe maybe that's just my own inexperience. Just listening to this with only Stone Temple Pilots like singles on my brain thinking like okay these sound quite a bit like this and Dave Coates sounds like Scott Weiland except just ever so slightly off ever so slightly uncanny valley ish yeah yeah i i i mean with with Dave Dave Kowatsi, i was kind of like <laughs> unsure how much they he was trying to do a tiny music t- era scott weiland sound with with the rest of the band i just assume they're like these are the riffs we always produce we are machines like they're just like such like punch the clock type dudes like we'll show up at the song factory at 9 a.m make a few (laughs) riffs clock out for lunch like it's just like i just feel like they have no I feel like the danger, the danger in Stone Temple Pilots is almost exclusively Scott Weiland. And if you just let Eric Kretz and the DeLeo brothers like run, they will just go on automatic and just pop out 5,000 more Stone Temple Pilots sounding songs. Yeah. Ad like, nauseum. Like they have STP motions and down on the STP music farm. <laughs> that's right. And they, they don't have another setting. That's I mean, that's that was kind of my take on it. It's like they just have this one setting. They kind of need Scott. They need Scott to drive them into more dangerous places. They're turning on the uh, Dean VST and FL studio. <laughs> so I think I, a part of that is uh, part of what, what makes Stone Temple Pilots work is the 
and what kind of makes them authentic, seemingly authentic to me personally was like the, the instrumentalists were very wholesome with their approach to like, to like how they enjoyed music and they, they weren't, uh, there wasn't like a detachment or, or like a sense of like, we're too cool to, you know, to admit that we like kiss or whatever. Like, no, they, they, they fully admitted to, you know, having kind of dorky influences. And I I feel like at the same time, like, even though they revered these bands, they didn't like hold them like, especially precious necessarily that they weren't able to just sort of, you know, veer away from that at times. Right. It was more like about they, they, they weren't like too cool to admit to liking him. It was more about that attitude. They weren't like, holding them you know in any you know particular high regard but like on top of that you had this guy scott wyland kind of come in and yeah he he introduced a little danger a little weirdness uh into things he was i mean he he's a good singer but he wasn't quite like uh a music geek guy like the like the uh instrumentalists were so yeah just like kind of brought a different dynamic to to things and uh yeah once you take scott away there there's just the dorks (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah and and they're kind of elitist about their dorkiness too like i feel like they're like so like well like scott wyland didn't know what a half diminished chord is so we don't need him like i just feel like there's an element of like of um hubris in this record of kind of like them not appreciating how bad they needed scott wyland and mm-hmm. they honestly like eric kretz delio brothers are fantastic musicians i love what they do um and also that's in some ways that's like we know that they can do better. We know that that's not enough. It's not enough to just be a fantastic musician. You also have to have something to say. You have to have that element of rock and roll of like right. leaving something on the line. Yeah. And I really feel like that's where Scott was dragging them over and over again was back out to the edge. And unfortunately, that was that wove in and out of his substance abuse issues. And then just on top of that, having like a clarity of said message too, because uh, they, they had the benefit of, uh, you know, working with Brendan O'Brien, a pretty big deal uh, for, for uh, tip hat, tip hat for, for at least I think, I think purple through uh, Shangri-La di da uh, they, they work with Brendan O'Brien and yeah, what, what it, that does, what it cleared, it made you aware of how good the compositions were and also just how, strong of a front man Scott could be at times. Uh, whereas when we're listening to this song, it's, uh, I'm kind of hearing DeLeo and I'm kind of hearing a singer that's not as good as Scott Weiland. <laughs> but I'm into it. I, I, I mean, I was uh, pleasantly surprised, I guess. Uh, it's weird that I'd never thought to listen to this record when I was younger. Uh, I was always told to avoid it like the plague. Wow. Uh, who, who told you this? I think, or, or just like, general i think just the Dave general Coates. feeling that people had towards it and, and it just, was the um, monkey patrol wasn't it <sighs> they got to me they, uh, <laughs> they right. got to him they got to him before he didn't make it hey speaking of monkeys uh here's track number two the big single off the record the one hey. with the music video with the monkey in it here's hello hello See, it's interesting having heard this a couple of times to think about 
what songs were chosen as singles because I think that almost all of the songs on this album could have been like singles. Not necessarily because they're catchy or really good, but just that they feel like the kind of, you know, like they check all those boxes that like the 90s post-grunge radio was looking for very specifically they're at the all time. all very similar cloth, aren't they? And, and I think yeah. that's kind of your issue <laughs> and for a reason why you couldn't take notes. I like this mm. song. Uh I remember when it was a single on the radio. Uh, I remember hearing it on AAF like late at night when I was like in sixth grade or whatever. And uh, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. It sounds, I, I like STP. Uh, <laughs> I never thought to fucking uh, seek this album for some reason. I just like forgot about it. Probably because the, the song disappeared from radio. I like STP. I'll yeah. go listen to that instead. I almost feel like I almost feel like if this was an STP song, we'd still hear it on the radio. Like like it was a statement almost by DJs against the talk show diversion that they don't spin this anymore. I mean, it's it's not inherently like that much better or worse than like Bing Bang Baby or something like that. I would agree. I think uh, I actually I really like that opening riff that like kind of three four thing. It's uh, a yeah. yeah, I thought that's like a cool songwriting device mm. it's one of the we, more clever songs on this record i think i think so too i think it's actually it this really is a standout it has like cool asymmetry to its structure and it has like some dynamic range in in dave kawatsi yeah. which is great and because like, he doesn't show that in all the songs like this actually has uh, some 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 good form to it uh, and also can we talk about how awesome the DeLeo and eric kretz's like are Multiple Eric Kretzes, mind you, are together yes. like in that every opening single Eric Kretz. Every single Eric Kretz in the oh, world. A few of them you have can, been on my couch. Believe me, I've, I've had you, I've had Kretzes for years. You can hear this like slight like sixteenth note swing in the drums, mm. and then like the totally straight approach of Dean over that. It's like they have this feel that is so distinct and so unique, and you can really hear it on display in the song. Yeah, De- DeLeo has that thing where he kind of. Uh, he plays like just slightly ahead of the beat or something like that. Or it's really yeah. just to get that attack, like that sort of conky attack more prominent. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's a definite. Uh, yeah. It, it, there's a very distinct character to, to that band's feel. Yeah. Should, should we, should we talk about the music video a little bit? Oh yeah. I, I mean, we're on I mean, monkey patrol, so we might as well look for them. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've been alluding to it for the entirety of this uh, of this podcast so far, but yeah, the music video basically depicts uh, the band, extra tiny, very very miniature version of the band performing on one of those, um, I want to say toy record players. Yeah, that I you, had that one. used to be able to get that could play like a seven inch. I had a toy record player as a kid. Oh, awesome. Oh, yeah. This is such a night. I I have it open right now. This is such a 1997 looking video. (laughs) It totally is. Like the fisheye lens and the and like the the water. Like, I don't even. Oh, here's Monkey Patrol. Oh, yeah. There's there's the giant the giant singing doll heads. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that that was creepy. Oh, the but there's heads. Dave Coots. Oh, look, crazy wild man. He's 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 uh, about to fall down. Oh, oh yep. crazy man. I'm a crazy Dave man. Dave Coot. <laughs> Dave Kudzu just gyrating all over the all over the place. Kudzu. Yeah. <laughs> I I remember liking this song when it came out. I remember hearing it on the radio. I remember watching the video. I also didn't. It never led me to check out the record. Hmm. I really think it's because they just. They buried the single, and 
I was young enough to uh, like forget, I guess. Like I, I was like that easily distracted at that age that I just as soon as it disappeared from radio, I fucking forgot about it. Yeah, that, that music video ties into the video that you shared with us in our messenger chat, Clint. That's right. The little after show interview where they're talking about how they're attracted to the monkey. That's right. I mean, Carson Daly brings out the best. He is a masterful interviewer. Everything Carson Daly touches turns to monkeys. <laughs> this was like early on for Carson Daly, too. So, like, he had to put up with this. He had no say. He mm. had to deal with, with the... It's true. He's like, I can't believe I have to interview, like, Dave Kowatsabots and, like, like instead of an actual Stone Temple Pilots, he's, like, totally checked out the whole time. So he's like, so guys, uh, how's Tor? You like, you like fish sticks? Like, it's like, <laughs> he just seems, like, so, like, uninterested. And you, you can t- and it, like, constantly you can tell- asks people if they like fish sticks, like, even that's on his, TRL. That's his signature. That's a signature question. No no band or artist gets through TRL without being asked if they like fish sticks. All right, Christina Aguilera, do you like fish sticks? I mean, after an after a while like the audience started like saying it too. It's like I think I know what ev- what's on everybody's mind, yeah. Kellis of Milkshake. Do, do you, you like, like fish sticks? You said milkshake. Do you like milkshakes. fish sticks? Milkshakes. Oh, fish you can tell sticks. also how you know dated in nineties the interview was because Carson's asking questions like, "So, who was the lead get the chick patrol? <laughs> who was in charge of getting women's?" Which is great because I feel like there's one woman in the whole video, and then there's a bunch of like creepy doll heads and monkeys. Like he's like, the one thing I saw was the woman. Everything else was invisible to me. Yeah, and that's probably like the least one of the least emphasized parts of the video too. Absolutely, it's totally not about hot chicks. That is not the focus of the video at all, <laughs> and it's totally where he went. <laughs> Like, she turns the record player on, and then for the rest of it, it's the band rotating over and over again, while occasionally there's a monkey and talking do- and singing doll heads. Why don't- like, every every so often, for, like, a couple of seconds, it cuts back to her doing, like, a very, like, you know, rock chick kind of dance, just going, like, mm, 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 sort of thing. And then just immediately back to the band with uh, Dave Chiotti Mundy humping the microphone. Ah... <laughs> uh- <laughs> let's move on yeah let's, let's move, move on. on here's track number three um this one uh this one titled everybody loves my car So I wasn't really sure what to think of this one because, like, on the one hand, they're clearly trying to, like, mix it up a little bit with that beat that's very sort of, um, you know, 60s psychedelia-y kind of. It kind of gave me vibes of, like, uh, She's a Rainbow by the Rolling Stones a little bit. I was getting serious Beatles vibes off of this one as well. But, yeah, Stones, definitely. I'm in love with my car. Definitely. By by, Uh, by the machine. yes. And, like, I feel like it's also kind of tying into, like, you know, Dave Couch trying to be, like, uh, Scott, like, inadvertently trying to be, like, Scott Weiland, too, just because of, like, how very, like, kind of horny the song gets in some parts, lyrically. 
Because there was that period, like, right at the beginning when, you know, Scott Weiland was just, like, just very, very horny with sex-type thing and Wicked Garden and all that sort of stuff. I always thought sex-type thing had more of kind of, like, a negative outlook on sex. I think that oh, was you're more probably, of a negative you're, outlook. Yeah, you're pro- you know what? You're probably right. But but you're right about Wicked Garden. That That's a very horny song, and... That yeah, is all about the doing pubes. more of the... Uh, yeah, definitely doing more of the, uh, like rock paramore thing than, than some of the other uh, 90s singers at the time where they were kind of more mired in angst. He was a little more hmm. mired in uh, romance in, I in mean, some since, ways. Since, since you uh, funneled us down this particular tube, Lils, how did, you, how did y'all experience the lyrics of this album in general? Because, I mean, I felt like in general, like the lyrics felt very kind of light and insubstantial. Um, and I was never a huge fan of STP's lyrics. So, like from a from a like just relative standpoint, it actually made me appreciate STP more. <laughs> I was like, mm. oh, actually, like Scott Weiland had a little bit more substance than I thought. <laughs> well, like I kind of have a problem where I have a hard time picking out individual lyrics backed behind like music at the time listening to it. I don't know what it is, but like it all just sort of muddles together for me sometimes. So I didn't get to like really look at the lyrics until like after the fact like deprived of the music and looking at some of these like i have genius.com open right now just so i can you know quote a couple of them some of these lyrics just make no fucking sense at all yeah i mean we're kind of dipping into gary sharon territory at at times yeah it's very sort of like stream of consciousness just trying to sound like all sort of pomo weird for the sake of weird but it's not really like saying anything well it's like 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 like, let me let me read uh a little bit of uh, everybody loves my car the first verse to the chorus broken records play shoes left out all day trips were started left departed to rise another day sing a wish for free pays the rent for me sun's reflection needs reception to rise another day Everybody loves my car. Everybody loves my car. I mean, I'm no, like, you know... Oh, pass the hat, pass the hat. <laughs> I'm I'm no, like, you know... I, I don't understand poetry all that well unless it's, you know, very, very obvious. But the uh, interpretation I'm just sort of getting from it is, like... A bunch of random psychedelic bullshit, and then vroom vroom. <laughs> yeah, or, or yeah, be, totally. Uh, it could be a commentary on like rock star life or something like that. The 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 singing for your supper line. Plus, you probably have a nice mm. car. Everybody loves my car. I don't know, but Dave Dave Koala Bear, like you know, isn't even fucking rich yet, or he doesn't even get well, rich because this is okay, a commercial so, failure. So yeah, if he, I can, he if, was obscure when he was picked up by the band and then immediately disappeared back into obscurity after talk show was done. But, but it's also notable that on this record, unlike Stone Temple Pilots records, um, the other members of the band got in on writing the lyrics. So Eric Kretz, the drummer actually wrote lyrics for these first three songs Oh, yeah. And also, like, later in the record, the DeLeo brothers get in on the lyrics. Eric Kretz writes some more stuff. Like, there's some songs written exclusively by Coots, which don't actually make any more sense than the ones written by others. But I feel like, sorry, just to just extrapolate on this idea, like, no producer. They're just like, we want to write the lyrics. I feel like they're, like, having, like... The band is having like an independence crisis. Like, so like, like, we so need like there's control. no one there to like 
there's no one there to like rein them in and just sort of get them focused. It, it, or, or moreover, like I feel like their reaction to Scott Weiland threatening their career with his instability was basically being like, we get to do everything. We're in control. No one tells us what to do. You know, so it's like, yeah. like, and I guess Scott Weiland didn't let them write lyrics to the songs. That was one thing that came out in one of the interviews was like, they mm-hmm. wanted to contribute lyrics and he's like, I don't want to sing other people's words. So now they're like, well, Dave Coots, we can push him around. So we're just going to do whatever <laughs> we want. So I just feel like there's a little bit of this hubris of like them being like enough of people making us making us dance when they want us to dance. We're going to dance when we want to dance. Like, yeah, it just it created this power vacuum as soon as Scott left. So it was like there was just chaos down at that uh, DeLeo camp. Yeah. Camp DeLeo. And I don't I don't think it's good for the band. I think like they had they had good established roles and I think like the lack of a producer and the lack of a solid lyricist is it yeah. was not was not There's a solid no development. You know what it is, guys? You know what it is? It's this record was mostly made for the DeLeo's benefit or, or for the instrumentalist's benefit, uh, because it, it was a reaction to the fact that they couldn't go and tour tiny music yeah. because Scott Weiland was, uh, you know, he, he went to a farm upstate <laughs> yeah. or, or yeah. he's in prison. So Daddy, like, what happened to Scott Weiland? <laughs> well, well, we have to take old Scotty out back and, oh, that's terrible. Yeah. I mean, and no, the same, Ma, the same... he was my front man. <laughs> I'll do it. Oh, will we get to visit the farm, Daddy? Well, <laughs> no, the farm's very far away. I, I just feel like... Let me tell you about the rabbit, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this record says so much about the way the DeLeos are thinking about their career more than it says about anything else Mm. because their musicianship is still there. Like, their ability to create their product is still there. But what's missing is kind of like this, like, the the drive, the feeling of why we're doing this. Like, if you just take the DeLeos in... In isolation, they just go and punch the clock and they'll just like, yeah, you know, chug out parts, punch in, punch out. But it's like there's nothing motivating it other than their desire to keep working. Yeah, these, these are all things that just did not jump out at me like the first listen through, which makes me think maybe I need to go listen to more Stone Temple pilots like after this episode is through. I would. Hi- I mean, I'm going to highly recommend you listen to Tiny Music. Uh, sure. I think that's a great record. Uh and maybe purple too. Uh, that that has some good. And, and yeah, I'd say like purple and number four too. If you if you if you like yeah. tiny music, check those two out. Mm. I like I love all three of those records. I think like purple, purple has a lot of filler, but the filler is surprisingly good. It's mm. like yeah. it's like it has hits that are just undeniable, and then its filler is like this filler would be better than most bands like. It was well songs. produced filler. That was it. The was thing. very mm. well produced. Exactly. It's it's not that it was like so much better than the stuff on the talk show record. It's just Brendan O'Brien. Yeah, had no, to he just cleaned up those hat. tracks really well and and just knew how to make a record out of nonsense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which a lot exactly. Of the 90s, there's a lot of nonsense going on in the '90s with like fucking longer CDs and hidden tracks and such. I feel I feel similarly about number four and and tiny music. These are both records that had plenty of filler, but the filler was pretty solid. Mm. Let's move on to track number four. Moving from that, uh, track number four titled "Peeling an Orange." Peeling an- 
Dave, uh, Dave Comfy Couch getting a little bit uh, Oasis-y right there. I was just going to say, this just sounds <laughs> like I mean, Oasis. Did, yeah. didn't, that, didn't you pick up like quite a bit of Liam Gallagher yes. in that vocal delivery? Yes. There's, I was definitely feeling the Oasis vibes on this record. In this song about, uh, you know, the importance of vitamin C, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, Un- unless like unless peels. the Unless, like, the titular orange is supposed to be, like, you know, a metaphor for something. Nope. Orange peels no, are definitely a good insect not. repellent, and you need that. That's important in uh, the no, sunny San Diego No metaphors climates. on this record. I actually read that okay. in an interview. Ah. Yep. So, he, so they were just very big into potpourri. I always assumed this was the inspiration for kind of like the Phoebe Bridgers kind of like vernacular, like colloquial, quotidian existence, whatever, like, like peeling an orange, go to the grocery store, then fill the car with gas. And then I had to write some stuff down so I don't forget it. Oh, no, I forgot something. What? Like, it's just like stuff I did. When you say fill the car with gas, you, of course, mean the tank, right? Nope. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. That's the car he loves so much. Don't fill it with gas. I also meant, I also meant highly flammable hydrogen gas. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Just straight up hydrogen. This is all going wrong for Dave Kufus. <laughs> You've been putting gasoline in that engine this whole time? What? <laughs> You're putting a, a, a caustic substance like gasoline into your car's I was using I was using I mean, orange acid. juice. That's this is this is another one that just has very strange like lyrical sort of just stuff on it. On uh, the like I have genius up in the bridge there's a line that says building a house from mud cuz it's already dead. Uh, uh okay. Cool. Yeah, you guys cool. remember you guys remember when the mud died? <laughs> I need to stop making my houses out of live foxes. <laughs> Was this the Kretz lyric? Actually, <laughs> no. like, actually, reading it a little more closely, I'm starting to think this might be like a you know pro environment song or something, or like you know anti suburbia maybe a little bit. Like oh. this first line: uh, "Can't stand the grocery store. Are there orchards anymore? Blow up the breakwater. Still water breeds disease. Now you got what you want." Give us back the trees. If I gotta live here, I gotta breathe. You're right. Gary Shalone. Yeah, Gary. (laughs) No pipe wrench, though. I gotta breathe. I gotta. Yeah. Hashtag, I gotta. (laughs) This is another song that, like, if you just listen to the first three seconds or whatever, the production just pisses me off. It's like... (laughs) So thin, so dry, so like I just feel like no energy went into the making of this record. It like, sounds yeah, like like a bit uh home studio digital. It's yeah, it sounds demo-y. It sounds demo-y. I it was does. like what, what you guys couldn't spring you, with your major label deal, you could not spring for like a decent producer. Yeah, sure surely a band that's opening for Foo Fighters and Aerosmith can afford like a Brendan O'Brien, or at the very least, uh, I don't know, Tyler O'Brien. Well, and well, this this makes you question. What I'm assuming he has a brother named Tyler who's he, not quite as good. Yeah, he's just like everything Brendan O'Brien does, just slightly worse. <laughs> oh, which God, I mean is a perfect soup all over the mixer again. Sorry, <laughs> Tyler. Oh, he's spilling soup. Tyler, I mean, we let you into the studio and you're ruining everything. That's that's talk show, right? It's like everything STP does, just slightly worse. <laughs> oh, geez, God. Did he produce this record? That would make sense. 
Yeah. <laughs> you deleted all the studio tracks, Tyler. What were you thinking? Uh-oh, oh. SpaghettiOs. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I was trying to text my mom about whether or not my underwear was folded yet, and then... I realized I just hit the delete button. Oh, I'm By text, cost. I of course mean enter into a pager because it's 1997. <laughs> He's just constantly knocking paper over for some reason. Oh no, Tyler, those were the meticulously handwritten scores for our entire record. You just knocked them over into the dumpster fire. It's like that tree oh, frog character. It's like that tree frog character on Bojack Horseman who just can't, yeah, who yeah, just yeah. can't walk anywhere without running into things. Uh, Charlie, his hands just sticking to everything. That's his name, Charlie. Charlie Witherspoon or something. Um, oh, I'm doing bad. <laughs> Tyler just go. Uh oh, sticky hands. <laughs> All the time. Uh. We got to do something about it, sticky hands, guys. Oh yeah. Oh my it's god. A real problem. Maybe, maybe we'll think of something by this next track, track number five, titled "So Long." Yeah, this just sounded like a Stone Temple Pilot song to me, except less. Yeah, no, definitely less. Uh, this was the first one where I, I uh, really like. I, I don't want to get into the, the habit of like saying that for. Ev- I don't want to get into the habit of saying that for every single song, but like that's just pretty much how I felt going through this. Yeah, for the most yeah. part. This is this is a definite song that like should have been on number four, like. It's cool music. I would have loved to hear Scott Weiland do something with this song. Um, yeah, it needs it. It needs something. It's just like it's just another like sign of their uh, inevitable and persistent mediocrity. It's mm. kind of a real nothing salad going on in this track. It's I, I even uh, this time around I was having trouble picking out the vocals at times, and uh, it's like the guitars were up too loud, or every, everything was just too crowded and, and messy. Uh, so. Yeah, it just kind of ruined my enjoyment of the listen, I guess. And I think yeah, if it were cleared up yeah. a bit, you know, and, and had Scott Weiland on top of it, you could have had something. But it really wasn't even mm-hmm. that exciting of a riff either. I think there's more interesting things happening on this album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think, like, the next track was pretty interesting here just because, like, it just changes the mood from just very generic sort of STP attempts. Here's uh, – well, I mean, maybe there's still a little bit of it in there, but – like here's track number six, titled "Wash Me Down." You can wash me. You can wash me down. Heaven has no windows, cause heaven has no walls, because wash them down. I mean, this at least kind of sounds like they're trying a lot harder to break away from it just be or maybe i'm just thinking that because this is the first one to have an acoustic guitar in it yeah uh, to me this doesn't really stand out against like stp of that era like it doesn't stand outside of the realm of what i would expect them to do for me What's, this this one sounded a little more brit poppy to me actually mm, i i, I yeah, did kind, listen, I'm kind listen, of with lils on, on that mm, where i, I am mm, starting yeah, re- to hear a bit of a break re-listening to that clip it actually kind of like popped up, 
like a little bit of High and Dry by Radiohead mm, into my mind, mm. or like My Iron Lung, or some other like yeah. Ben's era Radiohead. I was just I was too distracted by the fact that there was only one lyrical idea. Like I could not get into the song because it was just like <laughs> I've got this one idea here. Let's sing about it a lot. I've got one idea. I'm like, where's the other idea? The chorus was the same as the verse. It was, was like he, he was dry, and the lady came and washed him down, which means yeah. they had sexy he, times. He, he got he got a bath. Sexy she took him out to the back of the yard and hosed him down. Hosed him down. That was that was that day. What happened the next day? I mean, it could have been a metaphor. He got hosed, for... he got hosed down again. <laughs> it could have been a metaphor for alcohol too. You never. He, know. he gets washed down multiple times in the song. No metaphors. You're right. Sorry. Right, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. There's no metaphors on this record, and also, like, they just don't try hard enough to make the metaphor go anywhere. It's Like, the one thing that I disliked about this song, above all else, was this one specific line, which just sounds like the dumbest, treacliest, Hallmark card kind of song, kind of lyric. Heaven has no windows, because heaven has no walls. Oh, fuck you. Fuck you, Dave, uh... Cohabitation. <laughs> Dave Kushball. It's <laughs> a good one. Because uh, heaven has no walls. That's that's something that you can get from the paper store on a plaque. Yeah. Sorry about grandma. Uh, that's that's something, no something you can get from the paper store's tattoo outlet, the paper tattoo <laughs> store. Tattoo outlet. <laughs> Oh, you guys ever been to the back of the paper store? That's where you get the sick that's where the, tats. That's where they keep all the really decadent shit. <laughs> where they have the naughty papers. <laughs> you guys ever written on any four-dimensional paper? They got toilet paper that when you use it, you fucking come. <laughs> Wait, you guys don't normally come from toilet paper? No. That's where you go to get the really fucking explicit Rose's Rose comic books. <laughs> Oh, man, those ones are really horny. Garfield minus Garfield plus horny Rose. That's where you go for Ar- That's where you go for Arlo and Janice slash Vic. Oh, God. Everyone gets newspaper comics jokes. Fox oh, my God. Not dated. Not dated. I don't um, even know if half of those are even still in print. I think Foxtrot's still around. Uh Rose's Rose might be dead. I hope they are. Mm. No, but I thought I thought this song was fine. It just the lyrics ruined it for me. I just could not get into it. I think they just Scotty didn't go could have done some better lyrics over it. Yeah, the wind blows like, me in the corner and it pulls me down the hill. I I thought he was being blown into a corner. <laughs> or not. Because heaven has blows, no walls. Nobody blows baby into a corner. Guys, okay? Is there is there some way we can blame the DeLeos for this? <laughs> Not this one. This one was written explicitly by uh, Dave Couch. I just <laughs> we not said Dave Couch yet. Uh, it's hard to keep coming up with these on the spot. Like I said Kuala Lumpur before I said Couch. I said this is literally like the third time I've said Couch. Okay, actually, actually, this song, Dave Couch. Wait, no, I've said Dave Couch twice, and one time I said Dave Comfy Couch. This song, Dave Comfy Couch, actually wrote the music as well. Oh, you think maybe that's why it's a little bit less uh, fuzzy than all the other ones? Yeah. A little less less stone, a little more comfy. Yeah, a little more, uh, like, cowboy chords happening. Yeah. A little less Temple, a little more JCPenney. 
You know that that Stone Temple Pilots name is absolute nonsense, right? Like they they got their name from the fucking STP oil company, whatever, whatever. Like the sticker they saw it on the back of a bike. Like it's dumb. It's so fucking nineties, painfully nineties of them. Is that literally the whole story of how they got it? Yes. Like Stone Temple Pilots doesn't mean anything. It it me it's nonsense. Uh, so they, they were, so they just picked random words, like beginning with S T and P. So they could have feasibly picked anything else. It could have been anything. It could have uh, been like Sarah tries potatoes. I think they fact, had a let, list let, going. Let, let's try this right now. I'm I like going from me to Pat the Clinton. Let's just come up with a new one right now. All right, okay. got it. Um. Sunday. Takes. Prophylactics. There we go. 90s band. Sunday takes prophylactics. <laughs> I'd listen. Would listen. That sounds like that could be an agitation trip song. <laughs> yeah, here's track number seven. This one titled End of the World. End of the World's They're back to, they turned their distortion pedals back on and, you know, that's a thing they did. Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm hearing some kind of, some good compositional stuff, uh, just get, getting muddled by the production and uh, Dave Killjoy's fucking Killjoy vocals, I guess. Mm. <laughs> I, I actually, I actually just like still like the lyrics. I was just like, yeah, just like. Like, fell flat, like, it was, like, hyperbolic and then also boring. Yeah, I'm looking at... How do you at, do that? How do you, get, how do you be hyperbolic and boring at the same I'm time? I'm looking at the Genius.com lyrics page for it, and, like, for the majority of it, it's all in these big sort of, like, you know, the world's ending because you because I broke your heart, because it's all my fault. God, Mary, God, bless my soul. And then it ends with, end of the world's coming because I scuffed my shoes. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's also like, you know, like, it's Kid not stuff. a, this is not a believable sentiment coming from Dave Kowachawal. You know, it's just <laughs> like, like, I don't believe, I don't know. It just, it just doesn't mean anything to me. But, you know, maybe I need to listen to it 400 more times. Uh, I was like, Hail Mary, bless my soul. And she's just like, who are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm Dave. I'm Dave Couts. You know. Oh, Dave Coconut Couts. I just said it. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I feel like like I shouldn't like we shouldn't go through this podcast without me reading a little bit from that STP Legacy article. Um. Like the first couple of paragraphs, just sort of. We already kind of covered because just an introductory thing for the band. Uh, third paragraph in, Dave Couts has ripped the band in a new interview with Blast Echo. He said he considers the members of Stone Temple Pilots to be amazing musicians, but he unloaded on Dean DeLeo, calling him a prick and chord snob. He said, <laughs> I, he also added, I can understand why Wyland got high. He also said that DeLeo's and Kretz used to talk a lot of shit about Wyland when they were in talk show. Couch did mention, though, that he is amiable with Robert DeLeo. I gotta say, it's pretty brutal to say to, 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 say to a guy whose, you know, friend died because of substance abuse that you're the reason they were taking drugs. 
That's rough. That's what he's saying. That is what he's saying, right? That's like he's like Dean DeLeo is such is such a prick. He's the reason Scott was getting high. Oh boy. Yeah, that, it was that's, because that's quite a that's quite a uh, sentiment. Yeah, listen, listen, to, uh, Dean Dino, uh, all all of those diminished seventh chords and shit. That's why. That's why he fucking. Yeah. That's yeah. why he shot up. That's why he did it. Yeah. That's why he did it. it was because he was a chord snob. Yeah, for, Do further you down, it? there's like more sort of like really focusing on Couts a little bit. A uh, couple paragraphs down. It was a painful time for Couts, who today lives in Long Beach and is gainfully employed outside the music biz in a job he'd rather not disclose. They used to talk a lot of shit about Wyland, Couts says. Actually, all the time we were together. It's kind of like breaking up with your girlfriend and she starts going out with your best friend. Well, like, okay, to be fair, yeah, they, they were he's, just... he's got an axe to grind. He sure does, and, like, I, I mean, in, in the band's defense, like, yeah, it was just like they broke up with their, you know, they just had a breakup, and, like, that's kind of what happens. I don't know. But like, also... That's how, like, in, people, you know, move from that. And also, in Dave Coote's defense, they they clearly weren't ready to start a band with him in good faith. Yeah, this was. They, I mean, they, they this threw is him. A, they a threw him to the floor. Exactly, it was a rebound. It was a total rebound. They threw That's him exactly to the floor as is. soon as it didn't take. Yeah. Oh, here's an here's another excerpt that might be that might be funny. I'm not sure. One time, I picked up Dean's guitar when we were rehearsing for the album, and the guys from the Blue Bro- the Blues Brothers, Jim Belushi's version, were in the other room. He says so. Their band was just playing this bluesy, easy three chord sloppy stuff, and Dean says, "Don't pick up the guitar because I don't want them to think it's me that's playing it." <laughs> uh, Yikes! Yikes! Yep. What a dick! <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's track number eight. This one titled John. Once again, this one's just kind of okay. Maybe slightly higher tempo. Actually, I'm getting little bits and bobs of uh, like Velvet Revolver era Wyland from it a little bit, which I will fully admit up front I know more about than talk show. I, I owned that album. I think I still own that album. I, I may also go back, own the Velvet Revolver I may, CD. I may go back and re-listen to it and see if it's still like, you know, if it holds up at all. Because I remember liking it a lot when I was younger. I mean, you can't go wrong with Slash. Slash is mm. Slash is a winning article, pretty much no matter where you put him. Yeah, there, yeah, there but, are a few like uh, pretty pretty good riffs on that record, from what I remember. Mm. But yeah, this song, um, it's kind of like a. It's is it like too much to suggest this is kind of like diet tripping on a hole in a paper heart? No, not at all. Uh, it's kind of that similar <laughs> Cause that's, tempo because that's the vibe I got from it. I was actually really grateful for this song just because it, it injected some energy into this record. Which, yeah, yeah, this I, one was a little more fun. This sounded like a, a band kind of actually having fun, uh, and, yeah. and like they maybe liked each other. A band trying to have fun, a band having fun, and not like you know trying very hard to make sure they still have a paycheck. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I I enjoyed the song. It wasn't an amazing song. It was fine. It had a little like Beatles, you know, uh, color to it. Like I, it reminded me of Loungefly, like that kind of like harmonic yeah. progression, like. But it had an energy. 
And mm. like it had a dynamic, it had a dynamic flow, which honestly some of these songs just don't have. Yeah, I will agree with you on that. Yeah, a lot of these songs cool, are just like, kind of flat. Uh, kind of cool modulation that happens in this one, and yeah, I was wondering if John referred to John Lennon or something stupid like that, but who knows? John Hancock, the guy who signed the Declaration of Independence, real big. Oh, the big, the big signature. So big signature man. <laughs> That's what Dave Cucaracha wrote about. <laughs> Did Dave Coulier write this song? Uh, Dave Coulier. I mean, Dave this was actually this was this was <laughs> his response to "You Ought to Know." <laughs> oh, John oh, it doesn't say on Genius.com. In fact, oh. in fact, let's consider the possibility that this entire album is a. Oh, never concept. mind. On the, on the Wikipedia page, it says D. Couch and Eric Kretz. So yeah, that was a that was a Kretz Couch joint. <laughs> All right. Glad we solved that. Although, although I liked the the canon that we were uh, that Deegan was uh, leading us into. Where yeah, Dave I, I feel I feel pretty lyrics. bad. I, I feel pretty bad that I just completely shot that down without listening to what he had to say. It's That's all right. Fine. It's over. I, I guess I will never tell you guys about the possibility that this is a concept album that responds song by song to "Jagged Little Pill" by Alanis Morissette. <laughs> I'm just fastidiously. gonna. I'm going to leave that be. Okay. <laughs> and the possibility that Dave Coulier is Dave Coots. What? What? Too similar for comfort? Oh my god. Uh, my, my mind is going in circles and circles and circles and circles and circles and circles. <laughs> Thank god. Here's track number nine behind. This is one I also remember being pretty okay, and, like, I was kind of struck by, like, that, you know, Leslie effect on the vocals in the bridge, but, I mean, like, I feel like that also kind of speaks to just how little this album has been giving me, that I think that that's really cool. This, I think, was one of the better produced tracks, uh, if that makes any sense. There's, there's yeah, a little I, more I dynamic can happening. It's got uh, with, like, more depth piano. to it than a lot of the other ones. I think this one had like some piano on it, and yeah, it was, this and was Mellotron, like, right? Isn't there Mellotron on the verse the of this? There is a Mellotron part there. Uh, yeah, I liked this track a lot actually, and it yeah. felt uh, less. I, there were elements of Stone Temple Pilots happening, but I think also, uh, yeah, they were bringing in some different influence and uh, definitely heavy Britpop thing happening on this song. Mm. Yeah. I actually really appreciated this tune. I liked the Mellotron. I liked the production flourishes. It had more dynamic range. Like, it was doing something. Yeah, this is, like, uh, more in line with what... But but it also was kind of different from uh, what would be on, like, Tiny Music or Number 4. Mm. It, it also kind of has it stands on its own in, yeah. in some ways. Right. Unfortun- and, yeah. Unfortunately, this is not a track that I can actually look at the lyrics for. This and the final track are not on the Genius.com page for some reason. Hmm. Interesting. Dave Couillet wrote this one. <laughs> That's the only explanation. He ought to know. <laughs> he, he, he do ought to know. <laughs> he do know. Does Dave Couillet ought to know? <laughs> <laughs> Does Bruno Mars is gay? 
<laughs> does Bruno's bar is does Bruno's bar is gay? Bruno's bar. Oh, Bruno. Oh. Does Johnny Mar is Bruno? I think I'm losing my mind. <laughs> I think we all are. You're the only one that has an excuse, though. You've got a vape pen. Yeah, that's true. I I, I picked up drugs because of Doug Walker, actually. The DEA is on its way. You're already smoking weed, but you just picked it up this time. Yeah, I mean, I usually left weave it on the ground. Yeah, I was I was totally sober before Dean DeLeo. Mm. Now you're a Dean DeLeo holic. That's that's true. That's yep. not a thing. That's no. It's definitely this is your brain not. on Dean DeLeo. <laughs> if I have to hear one more diminished chord, I swear to you, young man. <laughs> young man. That, that that was the DeLeo's dad. Yeah. He was actually the, he Dr. was actually very anti music and, and yep. Dean and where Robert did you learn those go. polyrhythms? Where yep. did you learn them? I learned them from watching you. <laughs> I learned them from watching you. Oh my God! So, so okay, uh, DeLeo's dad. Uh, with, with, I don't know, uh, Harold. Dad DeLeo. Pa DeLeo, uh, old, old DeLeo, uh, he was very, <laughs> yeah, very strictly anti-music, so like the yeah. DeLeo brothers would kind of have to sneak off in, you know, uh, into the, you know, distant farm, barn that they had on their uh, big ranch. Uh, it is I, Oldford DeLeo, Esquire. That, I'm picturing them like walking in on their dad and he's like fiddling around on a guitar and he's like, don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> dad, what are you doing? <laughs> don't look at me. <laughs> I'd better not be catching you with none of them capos now. <laughs> Empty out your pockets. Let me see if there's any picks in there. <laughs> and mom just watched. Yep. The mom is Kevin Bacon. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. Interesting. Interesting. This is, a, this is a very interesting Oscar-nominated film we're coming up with. <laughs> Yeah, who plays who plays Doc DeLeo? Is it Anthony Hopkins? <laughs> Doc Boy DeLeo. <laughs> Doc, Doc DeLeo. Yeah, I mean they live on a farm. It all checks out. <laughs> Eric Kretz is played by Garfield. Oh my God, it's like Garfield. it's like it's Who Framed Roger Rabbit with just one animated character. Everything else is live action. Eric Kretz is voiced by Bill Murray. Like he's Meat Cat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the DeLeo House rules. Uh, hey, uh, to any of our viewers listening, uh, TM, hands off. Oh yeah, no. This, this, is, this, this is our, our this is our great idea. <laughs> this is a. <laughs> we know you're out there. A, although this is although, a very Deegan Martin joint. Anthony yep. Hopkins, if you're listening, um, get in touch because we have some ideas for a role for you. This is a Barry Deegan Martin joint. Uh, ba- <laughs> a bargain. Ooh. It's a bar- it's a bargain. <laughs> Here's track number 10, Morning Girl. Along with End of the World, this one is one of the ones that I remember the absolute least about every single least every single listen. Yeah, uh, although uh, 
It's got some good bass work. Got some good Robert work on this one. Yes, uh, yes. The kind of like James Jameson inspired stuff yeah. that he's got rocking under that. And this is actually uh, Robert wrote the music for this one as well. Ah, uh, okay. That makes sense too. What's that? Uh, what's that Dishwalla song? Like oh, counting uh, blue cars. Counting blue cars. Yeah, kind of yeah. reminds me a bit of that. Uh, yeah, the melody gave me a little bit of that. <laughs> not that a similar fan of chord progression. Uh, yeah, where, where it's like the the yeah the root two major sort of progression that it does there. Mm. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> yeah, again, I, I think production being cleaned up could have helped this song a little bit. Uh, and yeah, just sort of another yeah. boring quasi psychedelic. 60s yeah, th- this sort of feels sentiment. like a song where like that aforementioned Mellotron that we liked so much probably would have been interesting here. Yeah, I mean, why not? You're on track 10. Fucking throw some shit on this, There's guys. no rules. Yeah. Once you get Give to it, track 10, no rules. It definitely like is reaching for something, whether that's like a Mellotron or like a Farfisa organ or something like that. Just oh, to yeah. give it just a little bit more character. Yeah, which like on uh, on like Tiny Music... Yeah, they they were throwing shit like that on there. I, I don't remember if there was a ton of Farfisa, yeah, va- but there was definitely Vas- some... Vaseline had a friggin' sitar in it. Yeah, and like, uh, yeah, there there's all sorts of little things sprinkled on there, and uh, yeah, uh, a bit of a nothing salad, I guess. Yeah, mm, again. I, I I didn't I didn't hate it. It was just very wallpapery. Yeah, that's pretty much how I feel about it too. I feel like at this point in the record too, I've already heard everything that I need to hear. Uh, that was kind of my assessment that these last three tracks just don't really do much of anything. Yeah, there's there's not really any sort of curveballs being thrown at these last couple of tracks uh, until the very last track, which I'll get into later. Uh, but for now, here's track number 11, Hide. In, like, YouTube comment reviews I've been seeing for, like, a lot of the tracks, because, like, like, I I primarily listen to the albums on YouTube, um, a lot of people have been comparing the whole album to, like, very sort of a Beatles-esque song. I'm not sure if I get that for the majority of it, but I definitely get it on this one. I mean, maybe that could explain, like, I mean, the fact that it was, this, this is the one song written by all four members of the band. Yep. Robert DeLeo, Dean DeLeo, uh, I forgot his name, Kretz, Eric, Eric, Kretz. Kretz, Eric Kretz, and uh, David Kumquat. Yeah, it suffers from being the second to last track on the album, so it has that sort of like, what are we doing here, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it, it's not a bad, it, it's actually surprisingly not too bad, uh, and, and I think there's some strength to it, uh, and, and I did kind of like this one. I, I I think out of the last three, this this would be the one that I liked the most, maybe. Mm. Uh, I believe I'm remembering correctly. I read in an, uh, in an account of the band's uh, creation that they met long before recording this record, like the, the four of them while like Scott was still rocking and before Tiny Music was done. And this was the first song that they wrote. This is like the one song they wrote in that first session. Oh, interesting. Mm. Yeah. Um this one also the most lyrically dense out of all of them I'm seeing. This has the biggest uh, Genius.com page out of every single track on here. Oh, getting a little Dylan-esque on us. 
well, there's four writers on it. They all had something to contribute. Oh, okay. They In all, theory. Oh, they all contributed lyrics, too. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. How the fuck do you do that? <laughs> just, well, they probably just went round robin. Okay, Eric, you give us a word. Dave, you give us a word. Dean, keep going. Robert gives us 50 words because, you know, he's <laughs> like, more important. gives a shit if there's cohesion or anything? No, guys, we're yeah. just making a fucking uh, album. We're just moving units. I thought this was not a bad song at all. I thought this was like a pretty strong, pretty strong contender. Um, I mean, it still isn't like that far outside of like their operating level, which is like mm. good enough. Yeah. Hey, guys, did we do good enough? Yeah, that, yeah that's like, that's pretty much a good way to just sum up the entirety of the album. Just good enough. It's a B like plus that, SCP song, I think. This this song, <laughs> once like so many of the other ones, couldn't really you know get much more than like a fine out of me yeah but i mean that's kind of what we've been dealing with for the majority of this album right and i think that's kind of like you know what this album is saddled with it's like if you have a band like stp that's seen that level of success and like has that level of not critical acclaim but like sway um in popular music like Unless unless you're blowing down some new door aesthetically or, like, you have a, a few, like, big hits, it's like, what are you doing? Hmm. I mean, that probably speaks to why this has a supposedly, you know, bad-ish reputation among, like, you know, all these sort of, like, detours that bands do. Like, if this was secretly very good but a failure, then, yeah, sure, people would probably think it's an underdog. If it was a commercial failure and it also you know, got reviewed terribly when it came out, then you might see a little more sort of like, you know, rethinking talk show sort of uh, think pieces and stuff like that. But the fact was it was released and all the music critics were just sort of like, yeah, okay. Good for you. And and they got it, they kind of got it right, right? Like it got fine reviews. It's kind of a fine album. And it's like, that's just like not what we're expecting. Um, that's mm. not the expectation that's put on that group of people. All right. We got one more track. The last track on the album, track number 12. Feel the... F- uh, I don't... Feel the... F- edit point. <laughs> track number 12. Fill the fields. Once again, like the mere fact that they're doing a slightly different sound than some of the other ones, like on Wash Me Down, just makes it stick out to me a little bit more. Even though like the melody really isn't that like memorable. But like yeah. it's got piano, it's got kind of jazzier drums, it's got that tremolo laden guitar in the background. It's like, yeah, this this feels like something. This feel, uh the the sort of waltz feel that's happening, acoustic, lazy sort of shoegazy feel is done way better on the next album uh with on the last atlanta. track on that album called atlanta that's a fucking mm. awesome song uh yeah and uh it kind of does it, it captures this feel but like with better production and with scott wyland uh just doing a absolutely bonkersly good vocal take uh that mm. was actually a scratch take uh allegedly in the studio and they kept it uh this one i think it's uh one of the better ones production wise uh but like songwriting it's not quite up to snuff 
Yeah, but you can still kind of tell where like an effort was made. Oh, sure. A little more, a little more so than some of the previous tracks. It was more in the arrangement and the execution, I think, than like coming up with you know crazy chords. I guess uh, it was more about I guess crafting a mood. So it's not bad. Right. It's not a bad track. So, like I mentioned, in oh, were you going to say something, Clinton? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I mean, a, I totally agree with what Patrick's saying. Like Atlanta is like so much like a better realization of this idea, and um, it's a beautiful song. And I feel yeah. like this is kind of like a dry run for that. They're like, we have this idea for a closer, and and then they 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 knock on it a little bit harder on the next album. But mm. I also feel like this is. Um, this was still an interesting song. Uh, this is, like, it did draw me in a little bit. It has that openness, and it has something that Stone Temple Pilots does very, very well, which is playing slow as fuck. Mm. Um, they do. Uh, they, yeah, they, they don't, uh, they, they know when to kind of slow things down and when to groove. I think Eric has a good, like, really good backbeat. Uh, and, yeah, and they know when to kind of pull, he's a loud He's a really loud drummer, but he actually is pretty good with dynamics sometimes, surprisingly mm. enough. Uh, yeah, and I think more, moreover, they just try risk, like risky slow tempos more than their contemporaries. Like any other band that was playing this slow would have made it way busier. Like, and I think mm. that's actually a strength of this ensemble of, of the DeLeos and Kretz in general is their willingness to just be slow as hell and yeah. not to make it busy. They'll be slow and just leave it open. And um, not a lot of bands of their caliber do that at all. Mm. So, like, I'll close my thoughts out on this one by saying uh, earlier on I said, like, you know, it's the last couple of tracks. There aren't very many curveballs that could be thrown. Except this song does have a curveball, which I didn't realize it was there until, you know, I was listening to it one final time before we were recording today. Uh, let me play a clip from it. Let me play a clip from it and see if you can pinpoint when the song suddenly takes a turn. <laughs> it's a Christmas song now. <laughs> okay. I, I feel like Wills and I have very differing opinions on this. Uh, I take exception with that. You can use sleigh bells in non-Christmas music. No, you cannot. You guys, I know that you guys have a different opinion on this. And, and it's fine, okay? You know what? You don't. You don't have to. You know what? You. I, I'm gonna keep sending you sleigh bell tracks. You don't have to fucking use them, but like, I'm gonna keep sending them to you. I do not want these sleigh bell tracks. You send them to me in big ornate packages that take up a lot of space in my apartment, just to fill like just fill a packing peanuts just for one USB drive, and I open yep. it up and it has just you ringing the sleigh bells. It, it's like, reels and reels and reels of like two inch tape. Well, you, yeah, need, to you, set, you, you need, need to send me send Lil's all the tapes. You send me dat tapes of sleigh bells. You need to send Lil's all the takes. I mean, the, each one has a different feel. Well, line them uh, all up and you got a sleigh bell orchestra happening. That's too No, that's too many sleigh bells for not Christmas. Christmas, Christmas, Christmas time. Christmas, Christmas, Christmas time. And, you know, uh. that's, it sucked because I just got rid of these children so that I could fill up my house with boxes. And now all the boxes have sleigh bell 
takes in them. <laughs> That's what I've been using them for when I gave up my... See, I, I, I gave up my son, uh, Charlton, for uh, at least <laughs> Charlton. Is that his name? Char- Charlton? Charlton Barry? Yeah. Uh, it, it named after Larry Carlton, but I put an H in there by mistake. Uh, yeah. I often make that spelling error. <laughs> you, you meant to name him Charlton? Yeah, yeah. Carlton. That, that's the name. Charlton Carlton Barry. Uh, anyway, so I got like 6,000 boxes, and now I've just been shipping out uh, sleigh bell takes to everyone I know, especially Lil's, because I know it pisses her off. Uh, I've been sending them out to Abe in, in Philadelphia, too. Uh, and yeah. And Phil, and Phil in Abadelphia. Yeah. Oh, I, he does live in Abadelphia. Yeah, that's true. That is true. There's That's not, that's not wordplay. That's a real place. All right. So let's get to our final thoughts. Do you think that this is a worst of all time album, Pat? Uh, I personally don't think it's a worst of all time album. I, I had some enjoyment listening to it. Uh, it's not great. I don't love it. Uh, it's a pretty like B minus effort from a band that I think put out a A plus effort a year before. Uh, and yeah, it feels mostly indulgent and like it was for their benefit. Uh, and I think they they should have taken more time just to like, you know, flesh out these riffs a little more and maybe save them for what would be their next album. Uh, yeah. And there's just, there was no real need for this record to happen, but, uh, I kind of had, I had fun, I guess, kind of listening to it and being like, Oh, these are like secret, uh, B minus tiny music B sides at times. Uh, but then kind of listening to it again, uh, I the cracks really started to show and I'm like kind of noticing how pointless this record really was. So yeah. it's like I it's funny because I liked it, but I don't think it needed to exist. Uh Yeah. If that makes any sense. It's 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 a very yeah. weird feeling to have towards music, I guess. Uh Uh same question for you Clinton. Do you think this is a worst of all time album? No. No, and I would I would echo almost everything Patrick just said. I thought like the the key word in what what Pat just said was effort, like this just and and um and what was the what was the point of of this entire enterprise? Like it it's not a bad album, it's just not a good album. Um, it's it's only a good album because of the like musicianship, really. <laughs> yeah, and I mean uh, and. You know, regardless of the quality of anybody's musicianship, all music needs to have a purpose for being. Um, you need to have something to say. And, you know, if your heart's not in it, like, just stop. And mm. this, this, like, I feel like was a record that was made for the wrong reasons. Um, in some way, I feel like their hearts weren't behind it. I feel like these guys would have loved to have been playing with a functional Scott Weiland. And mm. instead they got, you know, a Dave Kukachara. And that's Dave and, Kumbaya. And it shows. It shows. It feels like it feels like punching the clock, which is what the DeLeo brothers do. But there was nobody to hold them to account. Uh, the 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 story around it also kind of taints the record. Like if yeah. if this was if this was an album that was put out by a pre STP outfit, if it was like, hey, Eric Kretz and the DeLeo brothers had a band before they hooked up with Scott Weiland. Um, and this was this was their record, and it came out in 1990 or something. You'd be like, huh? 
All right. Yeah, you can like, I mean, obviously it doesn't fit correctly into their aesthetic development as writers. So it would be very confusing because you're like, oh, they were doing like a tiny music thing like years, years prior. Before but core for some reason. Before core. How strange. But like the point being like if this was like their predecessor band, I think it would be easier to appreciate. You go like, oh, this is like a really interesting insight to their development as musicians. Instead, the story tells us that basically like they just didn't have any loyalty to Wyland and they didn't appreciate how much they needed him. Yeah. And those two things bear really negatively on the DeLeo brothers in hindsight. Like the fact that they just did not recognize what a magical thing that they had in their band. Yeah. That's something I didn't consider too, is kind of how shitty it was to be like that disloyal to Scott Wyland and like, the dude just needed help. He was like, you know, he was an addict. He he had issues with mental illness and like and with substance abuse issues. And yeah, I guess their choice was like they felt like they were victims of 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 Scott's, yeah. you know, uh, problems. So they they felt victimized by that. So they they felt like they needed to go and, and strike forward with, with a real uh, lead singer like like. Dave I mean, that, <laughs> I mean, that doesn't surprise me so much just because it's the 90s and there wasn't, you know, the kind of attention that we have to, like, substance abuse and mental health issues that we do today. Yeah, that, that's a very positive way to look at it. But I actually think this is more personally, I think this is more like a reflection of these particular people's hubris, like their willingness to be like, we're the best. Fuck that junkie. And like. Like, I'm just thinking about the other bands that came out of that era. Like, Nirvana would never go on without Kurt Cobain. You know, Pearl Jam wouldn't go on without Eddie Vedder. Alice in Chains did go on without, you know, um, without Lane. Lane. But they at least waited until he died. They waited a long time. They waited until he died. They hung it up. They, They said, oh, we can't play with Lane. I guess let's just take a break and do other things. Now, to like... To be fair, also to 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 the DeLeo brothers and Eric Kretz, Scott Weiland also made a solo album during this exact same period, and I have no idea, actually, which one of these things happened first. Like, it could have been Scott being like, yeah, I'm going to go to rehab, and then as he gets out of rehab, he's like, I'm working on a solo record, see you guys, like, in, like, two years or whatever. Yeah. Like, that could have been the causality. I don't know that part, but I do know from interviews that they were courting Dave... Dave Coots as earlier as Purple. Wow. Yeah, because, I mean, he was so, having issues. At, he, he was starting to have issues at that point. Start, he was clean I'm going to look that core. up. Uh, but so yes, like, the, that's no, like, sorry, oh, the 12 oh, Bar oh. Blues came after Talk, sh- talk Show. Yeah, talk, sh- talk Show came first, released September 2nd, 1997. 12 Bar Blues was March 31st, 1998. And, and one thing I'm noticing immediately, much better critical acclaim than Talk Show. Oh, people love 12 Bar Blues. They fucking love it. And also, like, it's just like, it's just like, you know, your partner, like, starts, like, shopping around for a new partner as soon as she notices that you have some friction, but, like, then you stay together for, like, two more years of, of her, like, maybe, like, keeping this person on the side and, like, talking to them. It's just like there's just something kind of weird and filthy about the entire enterprise. And it's not like I don't spite them for it, but it doesn't read well. It, it just doesn't, doesn't like it doesn't, the, it's not a good look. And the I think story. Yeah, if, if they were always kind of operating under the pretense that Scott was going to be gone. Like what kind of relationship is that? <laughs> yeah. 
Now, on the other side, like, you know, you hear them describing, like, you know, the making of their self-titled record in 2010, where Scott's, like, totally checked out, and he's, like, passing out while listening to the roughs, and, like, you know, it's just, like, you could tell this has been a troubled relationship all the way through. Maybe, yeah, that like... Album, that album is fucking terrible, too. They're, they're, it's The 2010 bad. reunion record that they do. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> I'd rather listen to Talk Show, but... Talk Show is the better record, actually. Yeah, yeah. But the, but the, the point being is that I just don't think they really appreciated what a magic they had together. And I don't put that all on Scott. I really think it's all of them together because some of Scott's solo stuff is absolutely god awful, like unlistenably bad. Oh, sure. The, the, the <laughs> like, Christmas album yeah. did was dreck. Oh, yeah. I heard the Christmas album was pretty bad. Uh, but 12 Bar Blues is pretty good. I, I, I dig that one a lot. It's uh, it's actually like very kind of Bowie-esque at yeah. times, which I, you could tell he was listening to a lot of Bowie at the time. I also don't think it's a worst of album, worst of all time album. Like it was, you know, it wasn't unpleasant to listen to, but at the same time, I have a feeling that this isn't going to be sticking in my brain for very long at all. Um, what would you say is the best or least bad track on the record, Pat? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, it's a tie for me between uh, the single "Hello Hello," which I just thought was like a pretty clever song, and and. Clever in the fact that it almost tricked me into thinking it was STP. Uh, but then as far as like a deep cut, uh, I, I, what was track nine? Behind? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the one with the Mellotron on it. Uh, I think that one was like kind of the most interesting. Uh, what would you say is the best or least bad track, Clinton? Very similar feelings. Um, I'm just going to go straight down the middle with a little hello, hello, because asymmetrical structure really fun song and actually pretty convincing vocal like and just yeah just enjoyable it was it was enjoyable to rediscover that song yeah H- hits on all the things uh that like make scp good i guess besides going, Scott Wyland. i'm going to say my best was wash me down just because of how different it was from the rest of the album up to that point with uh feel the fields being a close second because it's a christmas song yeah <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is the worst track on the record, Pat? Oh, uh, come back to me. I I, I got to remember the track. Okay, uh, what would you say is the worst track, Clinton? Ooh, that is a tough one. That is a tough one. Um, I actually really disliked a lot of the beginning of this record. Uh, I'm just gonna go with Ring Twice. I thought the song felt flatulent. It felt like poorly conceived it had all the hallmarks of an stp song without being good like it sounded Mm. like bad dead and bloated and like just like actually bloated like they just stuffed stuff in there that just like didn't fit the guitars were stepping all over the vocals they tried to do that like (laughs) vocal production thing with the megaphone which is just like a total rip on scott wyland's thing and it didn't really work Mm. um it was just like a very inauspicious way to begin a record. Yeah. Uh, my worst track was uh, I went with End of the World just because this was an album with a lot of tracks that were kind of interchangeable from one another and that I couldn't really remember that like were very difficult for me to like keep in my head. And that's the one that like having just listened to the album before we went on our Zoom call, I could not remember how that song sounded even left. <laughs> Like if like I played the clip and I still don't remember how it went. <laughs> uh, I I remember now. It's so long, uh, and I I think Rig Twice is a close second uh, because it's 
uh, a lot of the same reasons. It's just it's just muddy. Uh, it's just muddy, and there's no there there's it's lacking in in uh, sort of like compositional clarity. Uh, it, yeah, it was just like kind of the most nothing salad of a song for me. Mm. But we we did it. We got through it. We did. We mm. talked. We showed. <laughs> Are y'all spiritually restored? Like, have you reclaimed your scepters as commanders of of bad albums? Yes. I think that might have done it. <laughs> I mean, I don't feel like, you know, better necessarily. <laughs> But I feel less empty, comparatively. You know what would make you feel better, though, Lils? Monkeys. I was going to guess Christmas. Yeah, sleigh bells. Monkeys with sleigh bells. Pricey! Please make everybody feel better. <laughs> if a thousand monkeys had a thousand sleigh bells, would they eventually write, It's a Winter Wonderland? <laughs> they already have. Uh, thanks for being on the program again, yes, Glenn. Thank you once again. You know, it was my pleasure. My pleasure. I was very excited, and um, I was, I was like unsure if this was actually gonna be a bad record. I was unsure, like you know, what we were even gonna talk about. But it was Did really you? interesting, hmm. actually, to to get my head around it. I, I I was saying in the chat, I think this album is like in a way almost like the perfect candidate for this show because it's it's a literal jukebox zero. They they tried to make a hit and it just disappeared off the face of the earth mm. and like nobody's really talked about it ever since and it's a very controversial record uh, because of like the story around it so in a way it's yeah. funny that you didn't have much in the way of notes for this because it's like <laughs> like kind of a archetypal uh, example of, of like what we're doing here well yeah show. like you said no one was talking about it so where would I have been able to glean notes from sure sure that's true uh, you got anything that you want to plug Clinton Gosh, um, well, I've been putting out some new music from my band, Beauty is the End. So, um, really awesome stuff, if I do say so. Thank you. Like that that most recent track, that was like that kind of psychedelic, but also electronic suite. I forget the name of it. Uh, Glass Wall. Yeah, the Glass Wall that just reminded me so much of like Dan Deacon. That, that track is fucking great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So that's, that's, um, that came out last month. Uh, if you want to check that out, it's on Spotify. It's on YouTube. Beauty is the end. The glass wall. And uh, I'm going to be releasing probably like a song every month under that banner for the whole year. And um, there's also an LP coming out, which we just finished mastering. Uh, so hopefully fall. I'm going to say fall probably. Don't really nice. know. Uh, you want to plug something, Pat? Yeah, uh, check out my solo album, 20, Patrick S. Barry on Spotify uh, and, and all the rest. And actually doing a new project with uh, the old men, Yellow Cloud Boys, Christopher Brown and, and Jim Schultz, uh, along with former guest John Sasser. We're finally putting some music together this month uh, under the banner Ram Pikes. Uh, we should have a new record out on March 1st, though. Uh, mm. So check that out. Very cool. Um, I'll just plug, check out the other podcasts on the Zero Science Network, uh, check out the other podcast I do with, with, uh, recurring guest Scott Curland, uh, Hell is a Musical. Um, yeah, otherwise just, uh, do whatever. Do what you want. We're not gonna pull your leg. Oh, I have the new Fatigue single I put out, uh, 
earlier this month and the surprise party single as well. So go check those out. And uh, yeah, our theme song is Sunny Day by the band Froggy and the Friendship. You can check them out at froggyandthefriendship.bandcamp.com. If you have an album you'd like to suggest for us to review or just like to leave us some feedback or a comment, email us at jukeboxzerospodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jukeboxzeros or on Twitter at twitter.com slash jukeboxzeros. Uh, you can find us, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, or check out our archives at the Zero Science main page. Jukebox Zeros is a production of the Zero Science Network. For more great podcasts, go check out zero-science.com. And that about does it for Jukebox Zeros. I'm Patrick. And remember... Christmas! Christmas! I'm hitting stop. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>